Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, the host of Credit Hour. Today we interview Angela Landine, an instructor in the School of Health Sciences, and discuss the current challenges facing global health. Angela, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Now, Angela, you're an instructor in the School of Health Sciences at USD. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about what your role is at, at USD? Yes, I teach public health, an intro to public health class. Lots of those during the semesters. I teach that in class and online. We also have a global health class. And then I also teach epidemiology. Now, what might be uh, the hardest quiz that a, a student may take if, if they're going to take you know, intro to public health? Probably a midterm in class seems to be the hard one. You know, I I like to put questions in there that make them think out of the box because public health and global health and epidemiology, it's not so much the equations um, and the formulas. It's not about always the topics and knowing what the word meant, but it's the idea the outward idea of how we handle health. If we don't have health access, if we don't have a way for people to get to a hospital and clinic, they don't have the education to understand that they need to wash their hands, that they can't eat food if it's at this temperature, just these basic things, we're never going to get to a level where we have healthy people. Yeah, I I think it's interesting when you teach you know young people who are just kind of starting their education in a specific career or, or you know career trajectory, in your experience, why do people get into the health field? Most of them will come into it and they want to be a nurse or they want to be a doctor. Um, we also have OT, PT, addiction studies. All of these fields are wonderful, but it's interesting because the kids don't really know, at least on my end, from public health. They'll come into it to take it as an introductory class, but then they realize, you know what, I really don't maybe want to do direct patient care, but they don't know that there's other things out there. Um, so it's nice that they get a little taste of public health and global health, and a lot of them that like that view of the world and how we can keep people healthy and get them there on the prevention side first, right? Let's teach them, let's give the vaccinations, let's keep them healthy as long as we can before they get into the hospital system and in and out. Now, you were instrumental in bringing a National Library of Medicine traveling exhibit here to campus called Against the Odds, Making a Difference in Global Health. Can you just tell us a little bit about what this exhibit is about? Yes, we are very excited to have this from the National Library of Medicine. It's a banner exhibit, and we're talking about on these different panels of the banner, um, role of communities in different parts of the world and in the United States in improving health at home and around the world. We talk about the shared basic needs for good quality of life. And this means nutritious food, clean water, a safe place to live, and of course, affordable health care. That's interesting. You know, the the actual panel on AIDS I thought was really interesting. It spoke about uh, this specific case, Ryan White, who is a 13-year-old who had AIDS, also hemophiliac disorder, um, and was barred from going to school. Now, you know, he was eventually allowed to go to school, but the panel kind of talks about the discrimination that he was subjected to even after he was allowed to go. Can you tell us a little bit about how, you know, discrimination goes in 
and plays a, a role in um, you know global health and public health crises. Right, and that's a very good example with the Ryan White. And at that time when AIDS, HIV/AIDS, was kind of coming out in the early mid '80s, people just had no idea what it was. It was a brand new emerging disease. People were scared of it. There was a lot of stigma behind it. Till we got some more awareness and education on the issue. And what's nice is Ryan White, um, his plight didn't go in vain. Uh, HRSA, which is a agency under HHS, they do have a Ryan White fund, and they provide the medicine and the funding for those with HIV AIDS to pay for their medicine, which at times could be $5,000 a month. It's it's quite expensive. Well, and I think that's you know something that's interesting um, when you talk about global health and public health crises is that education plays a component. Um, you know, things like sanitation pl- plays a component, housing plays a component, food access. You know, how do you tackle an issue like global health when there are kind of a myriad of causes um, th- that may cause you know, a-, a bad public health system? Right. And that's really what it goes back to. When we talk about global health with the students, we talk about almost firstly, if you do not have a government that has stability, um, if you have a government that is corrupt or in some type of civil war or conflict, all of those services that need to go down to the people to make sure people are healthy, those get stuck. Um, Obviously, the country is spending more money on their conflicts or whatever they need to. So yes, those basic services of sanitation, water, things that we take for granted, um, you know, kind of living in our own little bubble United States, they don't even have those basic needs. You know, Syria is a good example of that, I think. Um, you know, I think everybody has seen on the news, you know, these terrible videos and photographs of children or people injured um, in a conflict situation. How does a, a conflict like that just overwhelm a health system? Obviously, you have injured people, so that's adding to, um, you know, the people who are at a hospital. The hospitals may themselves be destroyed. Um, you know, talk a little bit about how conflict really plays a role in kind of driving, you know, public health crises in certain areas around the world. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad you brought Syria up because that has been going on for quite a while, that um, civil war in that country. Uh, This isn't the first chlorine or sarin gas bombing on the people. But, you know, in 1925 in the Geneva Convention, um, after World War I, they had said the countries came together and said no more of this. You know, you cannot gas people. Um, It's international law now. So they're going against that um, Assad government is going against international law. It's very hard to get to those um, refugees if they can get out of the country. And we also see that in Yemen and South Sudan and Chad, um, Ethiopia, Somalia, where we are in a long, probably about a two, three year famine right now. And the same type of thing. When you have conflict, people are displaced from their villages. Um, They might have family members that have been killed. They're trying to get to a refugee area. And when you have thousands and thousands of people in a refugee area, it's very hard to get them food, water, vaccinations. And a lot of time what they've seen with the humanitarian work that has come in, they're trying to get the aid to these people. But then those um, rebels or whoever it is, they're stopping the trucks from coming in to give a lot of these camps, these refugee camps, the sources and the, uh, you know, the food and water that they need. Well, and I know that that's, you know, conversely, one of the arguments against uh, global aid is that sometimes it fuels conflict. Um, How do governments, um, international organizations, NGOs ensure delivery of resources to, you know, the people that need it on the ground? 
It depends. They will usually try to go through the government. Um, if the government is corrupt or they have problems like that, they'll use another contract group to go through. Uh, usually it's the United Nations and the many different pieces to the United Nations, all of their agencies. We've got UNICEF. We've got USAIDS. There's all kinds of different agencies that will, will try to get in there and do what they can. But you have Doctors Without Borders. You have a lot of groups that aren't even related remotely politically, and so they try to come under that guise of, you know, the Geneva, we're medics, um, you know, we're doctors, we're trying to help people. Usually they'll let those folks in. You know, I think one of the big success stories when you talk about global health crisis has been um, efforts to combat malaria in Africa. Um, things like bed nets, um, which are you know, generally cheap solutions that um, you know, can be given to uh, different people in, in remote communities. They don't require a lot of setup or infrastructure to deliver. I don't know if you can talk about just the success of that program and how we might be able to maybe model future programs on kind of these, you know, simple solutions that end up having a huge impact. Yeah, right. We've done a really good job with malaria. And like you said, just basic things of um, understanding that it's the female mosquito. She's coming out at dusk and dawn trying to feed on you. If you could have the insect Aside, bed netting. Um, we have basic vaccines for malaria, though they don't prevent malaria, they do lessen the symptoms if you do get it. So they are working on a better vaccine treatment for malaria. Um, we still have so many children under five years old dying of diarrheal diseases and malaria in AIDS, uh, things like that, those type of um, non-communable infectious diseases in a developed country, we don't really even think about that because really now what we have to deal with are chronic diseases from our lifestyle. You know, we have obesity, we have heart disease, we have stroke, diabetes. Um, these are all things that we have to worry about in developed countries and other countries around the world that are now getting into more development, like China. China has a very high obesity rate. Mexico is doing better economy-wise. They have one of the highest obesity rates. Um, so definitely we have to look at global health and not make it a point of of why do I care about global health here in South Dakota? Uh, but we have to look at it as kind of a human equality, a health equity piece to it. Because if countries can't take care of themselves, then they rely on other countries for aid. You can only give so much to so many, all of these developed countries. And we really want people to understand that they have an economy, they have jobs. And if they're better able to take care of themselves as a country, we're all going to have a better trade relations and import-export. Well, and what I think is so interesting about that is, I mean, and, and we discussed kind of conflict situations um you know, a little bit ago, but how conflict, you know, drives people, drives migration, and then that spreads disease, that spreads, you know, humanitarian crisis, global health crises. Um, I, I don't know, you know, it, it probably depends on the region of the world that you're talking about. Is there one, you know, singular global health crisis that the world needs to be concerned about or should be most concerned about? Is it more multifaceted than that? You know, I would say that in our classes, and I and I say this to the kids, it's the usual suspects because when we're talking about all these different disease states and different issues with the government, we always look back on sub-Saharan Africa. They always have the worst health outcomes. They are still dealing with uh, HIV AIDS more than anybody, malaria, tuberculosis, starvation, um, just a drought, a little bit of a climate change really hurts these people when they don't have the availability to feed their lives 
livestock or get crops in the ground. So definitely, I would say that area in sub-Saharan Africa, and like I'd mentioned before, South Sudan, Chad, Yemen, uh, that area is also really heavy. But it's interesting because now we have areas that are kind of coming up as um, things we hadn't thought about before, but like Russia has a very, very high level of lung cancer. Um, Their smoking rate is just skyrocketed. Uh, So it's interesting how we see some of these other things coming up that we wouldn't have thought of. But like you had mentioned, we we are a global world. You know, we get on a plane and we can be in another part of the world in a day. And we do this all the time. So we have to be really cognizant about these emerging and re-emerging diseases that can easily spread from one country to another so quickly and we wouldn't even be able to catch it. Well, and I think that's what, you know, is the movie uh, depiction yes. of, of, you know, global health crises is kind of the pandemics or the you know, things like Spanish flu that, you know, sweep through and, and killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people. What is the risk level for something like that to occur again? Do we have the infrastructure or tools in place to be able to stop something like that from, you know, quickly spreading all over the globe or are we just as susceptible today as we were maybe a hundred years ago? No, definitely. I, I think that we really had a wake up call during swine flu, avian flu. The last one was the swine flu in 2010, at least within the United States, we are pretty mobilized. Uh, Lots of money came out from CDC under HHS to, and also Homeland Security to make sure that the hospitals, all the public health departments, emergency managers, you know, fire law, EMS, everybody had the equipment they needed and everybody's been training and ready for something. Now the public health preparedness response folks will tell you it's not if the pandemic is going to happen, it is when. They all really do believe that it is going to happen. And we're seeing more of these emerging, re-emerging diseases. We thought we had measles kicked. Measles is back. Um, We didn't even think about tuberculosis again until all of a sudden HIV AIDS started coming up. And when your immune system is so depressed like that, um, it's so much easier to catch the active um, tuberculum of TB and to to have a full-blown disease. I, I think in the world of public health and global health preparedness, yeah, it, it will happen. But I feel safe that we do have the preparations and exercises under our belt. You know, this question might be a little bit in the weeds. Um, recently, I think the CDC kind of removed some restrictions on the research that one could do on, um, you know, diseases of mass destruction, for lack of a better word. It, you know, in the news, obviously, it was reported, and it, it seemed like anybody with a home test kit could order, you know... Some uh, anthrax. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you can comment just on, you know, the decisions that go into research um, when people are trying to research these diseases and learn more about them to either, you know, develop cures for other diseases or just, you know, obviously kind of anticipate um, how they might evolve and then how, you know, we would be able to stop them. That is a long process. You know, when we're looking at developing vaccines or when we're looking at different treatments, um, also when we're looking at just pharmaceuticals and, and um, producing 
medicine, you know, producing drugs. It goes through many years of clinical trials, and it should because it needs to start with animals. We need to make sure that we're not hurting the animals, and then we go through the different clinical trials. Sometimes it takes four or five 10 years, it just depends. So I think for researchers, that's the hard point is they they see the cure, but it takes so long to get through final approval. Uh, other countries can do it a little bit quicker. I know France um, works at it and they, and they do partner with the United States, but their system seems to go a little bit quicker. Um, like you said, I think we all have to come together and I do see that with the different foundations, the Gates Foundation, and there's a lot of them that do put in a lot of philanthropic money for health and global health, more of that working together to meet our new sustainable development goals. We went from the uh, Millennium Development Goals and we switched over in 2015 to the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, I think that when we talk about global health, a lot of it unfortunately comes back to dollars and cents, right? And, you know, people in the United States might look at it and go, look, we have work to do in our communities right here at home. Why should someone in the middle of a state like South Dakota um, who might not feel, you know, a direct connection to a place in Africa or, you know, a lung cancer patient in Russia, um, why should we care about global health? No, that's a good question. I think we all struggle with that. When we see our own populations, um, areas where we have huge poverty numbers, we have people that don't have fresh fruit and vegetables, we're in food deserts, we have people that are homeless. Uh, We see all of this and we wonder why all of that money that's going to another weird foreign country that we can't even pronounce the name, why is all that aid going there? And I will say that the aid is still going to the places, the United States, It is more of an issue of trying to get it all out. It's an issue of having a shortage of public health professionals or healthcare workers, nurses, community nurses, doctors to be able to provide a lot of the services and kind of that infrastructure. So the money is there if it's used correctly. Now, I think is the United States, we are the biggest funder of the United Nations. We give more money than anybody else. And actually the United States in the kind of giving that we are we are a giving nation we are a giving people we were the ones that went in and started the pepfar fund under george bush to give millions of dollars for aids treatment and research and when we did that the united states did that all of these other developed countries said oh, okay well we got it too we don't want to have egg on our face that we didn't also give and so we're still doing that a lot but what's interesting is with the sustainable development goals is asking for every country to be more sustainable to be able to provide the jobs for their citizens to provide the infrastructure. But we again go back to all these other countries that are still providing aid because they just can't get past the bad health outcomes. You know, that was that was something I had in my notes, actually, was um, I was in high school at the time. I mean, I remember listening to the State of the Union when you know President George Bush um, talked about the AIDS initiative, the Global AIDS Initiative. How successful has that been? Um, you know, has has it made progress? Um stopping HIV, stopping AIDS, um, and maybe what's what's kind of the next challenge on the horizon for that specific disease? Yeah, it has. It, it did a world of good. We still have people that are contracting HIV, AIDS, but it really is starting to come down to 
the education, getting the education, getting it through culturally um, for people to understand. People are still illiterate. You know, if we're going to make a public health communication campaign, it better be a lot of pictures because there are people that cannot read. Uh, so it definitely has gone in and it's helped the research and to be able to provide the vaccines. And we have all kinds of different funds to be able to do that. Um, I would hope we get very close to getting a vaccine for HIV AIDS. And I think that's the thing that they're working on now. And hopefully five, 10 years we'll have that. You know, I, I, I hesitate to ask you to uh, make some sort of pronouncement about where we're at in terms of, uh, you know, global health. I mean, I, I think if you look where global health was probably 50 years ago, we were dealing with so many issues that um, were preventable and we've made great strides in that. Obviously, there's more work to do and it's not a static um, um, place where, where global health is at any given point. Where are we at with global health? What do you anticipate to be kind of the next challenges or the next great successes that we're going to see in the next 15, 20, 25 years, whether that's specific disease research, maybe it is, um, you know, like, like you've commented on, just better governance and, and that making a huge impact on global health and, and individual communities? No, good question. I think one of the glaring issues is when we look at, um, you know, not so much the United States, but definitely like France, Denmark, uh, especially Japan, they have a very high uh, life expectancy. They're about 83, 84 years old. And then we have a glaring other side of it when we look at Sub-Saharan Africa, Sierra Leone, a lot of these countries, they're almost 20, 25 years less in life expectancy. So where you live is where how healthy you're going to be. And it's not just in other countries, but we have that right now with our own uh, American Indian reservations. We have that same glaring discrepancy in life expectancy. Um, and that is just the issue of access, treatment, education. So more of the infrastructure, yes, the government, we need the funds, but we need the workers. We need um, to make sure we have enough nurses, enough um, mental health counselors, all of that allied health force. We definitely need more of them. And then on a global view, I think we're going to get better and we'll just have to see when we get a little bit closer to 2030 because these were the goals for the sustainable development. And again, they're trying to get countries to be bolstered, to have a better government. You know, if you're in a communism, under a communist state, you just aren't going to have the benefits that you're going to have in a free state. Um, so hopefully we can kind of turn some of these things around. And it's not just all of our issue as the United States, but I think it's really the whole United Nations coming together to do something. Angela, thank you very much today. This was a really enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week, we interview Keith Braveheart, an Oglala Lakota artist who completed his MFA from USD this spring, about his art, his inspiration, and where he'll go from here. Until next time, go Yotes.